Hi there, it's Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead. We're, we're styling here this time around, Ron. Last week we talked about, we started talking about investment styles. We talked about high volatility, high beta, low volatility, low beta, growth stocks. Let's take a look at some of the other areas that we can think about in our investment style. And let's start off with value stocks. Now, value is traditionally associated with stocks that are considered to be underpriced. But the question is... How do you determine that? <laughs> exactly. How do you determine what's overpriced and what's underpriced? And of course, a lot of the ETFs or exchange-traded funds that use value as a criteria, they have a number of factors they look at. In other words, how it does the share price compare to its earnings? How does the share price compare to the sales per share? And often, how does the share price compare to the underlying value of all the assets? So these are called um, price to book value, price to earnings, price to sales, there's price to cash flow. There's just a number of metrics that you look at determine whether a stock is cheap. Some stocks, if you took their earnings this year and divide it in, into their share price, you're looking at companies would have to have a thousand years worth of earnings added together to equal today's share price. That is not a value stock. Typically value stocks are companies that often trade at 10 to 15, maybe up to 20 times earnings. earnings. Yeah. So you take their earnings and you this year's earnings, maybe if you added them together over the next 15 years, it would equal today's share price or less. So for example, the iShares S&P 500, you take the value side of that, and there's going to be so many stocks that fit into what we call value. When these factors are low, when you've got low price-to-earnings, low book-to-value, and low uh, sales-to-share price, they build a portfolio of these kind of companies. And for example, the IVE, which uh, takes the value part of the S&P 500, the value stocks that make up that index, you know, names in there are like JP Morgan, which is a bank, AT&T, which is a telco, Chevron, which is an oil and gas company, Apple, which is in electronics, but isn't, is always seem to be reasonably priced. So these are really classic value stocks and value companies just by looking at the industries, you find they tend to be industries where because of the underlying structure of the companies, you're able to buy them at a little cheaper. And if I have a bias, it tends to be toward value myself. Okay, let's say just for a second, let's just talk about Apple. And we've, we've touched on Apple a couple of times. People aren't buying cell phones the way that they used to. They're keeping their cell phones a little longer. Uh, Apple's now going into Apple TV. I mean, they're they're always trying to find new ways in, in which to innovate their company. But are, are they challenged? I mean, we know they have huge cash reserves, but are they challenged a little bit going forward, do you think? They are challenged a bit going forward, and that's why they're a value stock, is because people see, well, there could be some problems ahead, like, for example, Chevron. Well, they're an oil producer. Well, there could be some problems down the road, but the price more than makes up for that because these stocks are very, very cheap. And often the negatives that make the headlines about the company's future aren't generally as bad as... The positives the, which are in place. Yeah, the positives yeah. which are in place. So sure, there's negatives, but usually the companies are able to capture some growth 
and they're so underpriced that they tend to get a nice bump in their share price just because it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. And in Apple's case, yes, Apple has had some real technology issues because what do you do after iPhone, iPad, Macintosh, and... Uh, yeah, where do you go next? Yeah, right? where yeah. do you go next? And of course, they're turning more into a services company where, you know, like if you want iTunes, it's $10 a month. If you want Apple TV, it's, it's $4.99 a, yeah, a month. Yeah, $4.99 a month. So they're starting to monetize a lot of the things that you used to do for free. And um, over time, they seem to have a lot of areas they think that they can charge a monthly fee for. And because everybody's hooked... With their, they'll just keep paying. They'll keep paying. And, you know, if you take a look over the last couple of years, how much of their revenue is coming from services, which is stable because people do it every month, uh, that has been growing very dramatically. So the stock is cheap because people wonder what's the next act. But Apple seems to be proving that the next act is going to be services. And, you know, they are coming out with some new stuff. Like the well, the watches and yeah, the watches yeah. and things like that, and Apple TV. So there are some new things, but their rate of technological innovation has certainly slowed down. But the service model means that they can pull this out for years of getting growth if they're able to execute properly. Okay, momentum stocks. Well, uh, that's a uh, that's a pretty big category, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's a catch-all that has a lot of different things in it. Momentum stocks are ones that are moving faster than the stock index as a whole. And it can include almost any of the above categories. In other words, growth stocks can catch on fire. Value stocks can catch on fire. Low volatility stocks can catch on fire because everybody's afraid and are piling into them, so they tend to go up. High volatility, uh, defensive cyclicals, they all have their days in the sun. And these momentum ETFs, what they tend to do is they, they tend to buy more into sectors than individual stocks. So uh, you'll typically get a sector taking off, you know, like maybe the oils, the semiconductors, uh, the software companies, whatever it happens to be is getting hot. So these ETFs, and an example of this is the iShare Momentum Factor ETF, and it's a momentum fund, and it has mid-cap and large-cap equities. And it's uh, essentially, you look at its largest holdings, which are MasterCard, Visa, as well as Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Cisco. There's a lot of companies in there right now that are experiencing tremendous upside. And some of these are value names, like Procter & Gamble is generally considered value. Uh, you get Microsoft, which is considered growth. Cisco, which has often been considered value. Uh, MasterCard and Visa, which are considered growth stocks. So, you know, they come from all over the place. And as you pointed out in, in a previous episode, uh, very few countries in the world, comparatively speaking, compared to North America and parts of Europe, use credit cards. So there's a lot of opportunity down the road there for companies like Visa and MasterCard. Yeah. Abs absolutely. And the iShares Momentum Factor ETF is a good one to look at. The symbol is MTUM. And there's lots of momentum ETFs out there, but this is a good one to look at. Uh, just to see you how a, it's structured. Yeah, it, it's like popping. You're buying a car, you pop the hood and look underneath. Well, this there's lots of information online on on some of these bigger ETFs, so you can spend a, uh, maybe in a half hour reading, and you'll get a good understanding of how each one of these works. 
Okay, large, mid, and small cap stocks, another area of investment that uh, you should be thinking about. Yeah. So when a, an economy comes out of recession, it's often the big guys that move first because when things start turning around, um, investment tends to move toward the, the bigger companies because they can take advantage of it first. And then often the momentum moves to the mid cap. And finally, later in the cycle, you often see the small cap stocks taking off. So you should have an idea of what constitutes a large cap, a mid cap, and a small cap stock. Well, a large cap stock is generally, if you add up all their shares, they total 10 billion or more. And a subset of that is the mega caps. These are the monsters like Google and Microsoft and Facebook. These guys have valuations in excess of 200 billion. Walmart is another example of, of that. And so you can look at names in the large cap sector. And in the US, it would be the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, which has an ETF, DIA, uh, the TSX 60 Index, which has uh, ETF in Canada, XIU. So they're fairly well representative. Now, mid cap is 2 billion to 10 billion. And mid caps are riskier because they're smaller companies and they don't quite have the size in the balance sheet. And so they tend to be more volatile, especially in bad markets. Uh, mid cap, however, tend to have more growth potential when markets are going up. And a good example of a mid cap index is the iShares S&P US Midcap Index. And this ETF, its symbol is XMC, trades in the US. And finally, if you look down low enough, you move to the small caps. These are companies between 250 and 2 billion. And these are usually companies that put the retro rockets on, often late in the economic cycle. And so you've got the iShares. A good example of this is the iShares small cap ETF. IGR trades in the US uh, is a good example. Now, if you take a microscope, you'll find that there's microcap stocks. These are 50 million to 250 million. And then they call them the nano cap stocks. These are valuations under 50 million. Now, you can get really rich in these things. But you take a lot of risk. Oh, yeah. But you can also get very, 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 very poor. <laughs> Stress the very, 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 very there. <laughs> Let's talk about the differentiation between top-down and bottom-up investing. Because that's something I think a lot of people, that they're just not aware of it. Yeah, top-down, imagine you're in an aircraft and you're at 50,000 feet. You look out the window and you can see for probably a couple hundred miles in every direction, you can see a long way when you're up at 30 or 40,000 feet. Now imagine you, you, when, as the plane comes in toward the airport and you're 1,500 feet from the ground, you've got a closer view of things underneath. That's how top-down investing works. You take the big macro view first. So a question you might want to ask if you're a macro investor, what country globally do I think is going to have the best growth next year? Or what industry globally do I, see is going to, do I think is going to have the best growth next year? And so you start out with this, and then from there you go, well, what company within that industry do I think is going to grow?
So you're really you're starting to break it down here. Yeah. Sector by sector. Yeah. 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 Or if or if you find uh, something like lift, like you think that solar is going to do well, really well, well then you might need batteries for that, and batteries require lithium, and if they require lithium because you believe the revolution is going to take off, then where can you go to find the lithium companies that make sense? So you sort of work your way down from the top to the bottom. This type of in investing, typically you start with the big view and work your way down. So when a, a portfolio manager says I'm top down, it means they start with a big picture. Okay, so then obviously the, the bottom up is, is the opposite of that, right? Yeah, except the bottom up, what they tend to do is they tend to, they don't look at top, they don't look at what's up there. They tend to focus on the individual company. So they're looking to see what will affect company performance. Is there a big lawsuit that could hurt them? Is company management, or is the CEO good? Is the CEO have stock? So many companies, management doesn't have any shares at all, and you've got to wonder what about their commitment to the company. You've got to look at their growth. You've got to look at the supply and demand of their products. So, and you've got to look at the breadth of the services offered. You've got to look at their financial statements, their overall financial health. So you're looking at the nuts and bolts of individual companies, and you're trying to find companies that you're getting at a reasonable price, but you're looking for companies that have the upside. So bottom up is strictly focusing on the individual dynamics of what's going on under the hood of an individual company. So now that we've talked about all these areas, do you have to say to yourself, how does this imply to my particular investment situation? Yeah. So if you're a conservative investment or near retirement, you'll want to look at funds in the following categories. Things like the low volatility, low beta, the value, the defensive. These are typically sectors where you have less volatility. Often these companies pay higher dividends, which is the, what you're looking for. You don't want to be scared in retirement that you wake up one day and you've lost half your money. Also, if you're a trader and markets are going to crap, well, you want to get out of the high volatility, high loss stuff, and you want to get into things that are a safer harbor where you're not going to get bounced around as, as much. Now, if you're younger and you've got lots of time to recover, maybe you're 30 years old, you're not going to retire till you're 60, so you've got 30, 35 years to wait, well, you can look at areas where you're going to get bigger growth, and that would be high volatility, high beta, the cyclicals, the growth, momentum, and uh, small and mid-cap. If you're a trader, when markets are taking off and you're entering a bull market, these are the high-octane sectors uh, in the economy you want to look at. They'll give you the most growth. Or if you short stocks, you make the bet they're going down, these are the areas that obviously go down the hardest as well. If you're a trader, these are areas that you can look at both on the upside and the downside to give you a bigger bang for your buck. Now, as you get older or more conservative in time, a good strategy is to slowly decrease the weight in the more aggressive styles we talked about and increase your weighting in the more conservative ones. That way, you'll slowly be taking the volatility out of your portfolio as you move into retirement. And those downward spirals are not 50 or 60%, maybe they're 10 or 15%. And yeah. you can wake up in the morning with a reasonable smile on your face. That's the whole plan. So there you go. Investment strategies, some of the things you should think about. As we say, this is a, this is a we feel, an education process. And there's a lot of components that are involved in this. So we appreciate you sticking with us. If, if there's something we've covered that you're not quite sure on and you want some clarification, or if you have a question about an area that we haven't touched on, 
make sure you reach out to us to our website, letsmakemoney.ca, and you can get right to our inboxes there and we'll address it. Or you can reach us also through the cfcw.com website. Same opportunity to ask the question. The show is called Making Money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for joining us. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.